Good morning. I'm Pastor Craig. I would love to meet you if I haven't gotten a chance. Uh, before we jump into our passage in Hebrews, uh, I want to ask, do you think that we live in a, in a culture that is more stricken with a guilty conscience now than a couple generations ago or less? Less. The first, my gut reaction to that question is less too. Surely we post-60s, post, you know, free love and peace, and uh, surely we live in this beautiful, guilt-free, uh, we're past that old thing called conscious kind of uh, culture. But then on second thought, I'm not so sure. Because haven't we just really just switched what we feel guilty about? Haven't we just switched from things that maybe felt more traditional or more what, what previous generations felt guilty about? We've, we've switched them from one thing to another. We still feel guilty, but now we feel guilty about, instead of, say, sexual immorality, we feel guilty about economic immorality. Or we feel guilty about political injustice. Or we feel guilty about the Facebook post that we saw or posted or don't live up to the other people whose life is more beautiful on Facebook, or all of these other things. Do you, let me ask a little different of a question, do you think that having become a Christian, if you are uh, a Christian, do you think you are more, do you feel more guilty now than you did 10 years ago? Does becoming a Christian make you feel more guilty or less? I know if I were to talk to a college student today, the vast majority of students would not say that they struggle like David Brainerd about their conscience before God. They're not guilty because of all the sins that weigh them down before a holy God, but they struggle with the guilt of all of these crazy things that they think they have to do to change the world, to get a degree, to have purpose and passion. They are stricken with a guilty conscience, just not really in relation to God. So what would it mean for us to think about a guilty conscience, to even start from a guilty conscience, but make sure that it is in line with or in relation to the holy God. That can be, that's the assumption of the text, but it can be such a culture shift because what we feel guilty about is so different, is so horizontal, is so much about our image or the latest fad. Well, as we get into this passage in Hebrews. I want us to try to realign our view of a guilty conscience, but then actually see this incredibly beautiful and powerful good news of what God wants to do with our conscience, which is purify it, cleanse it, to come to him. Let's pray, and then we'll jump in. God, we praise you that we can come to you, that we have been able to come this morning, that we have sung your praises, that we have confessed our sin and heard the incredible promise of the gospel, 
And Lord, now I ask that you would, by your powerful Holy Spirit, take your word and apply it to our hearts, teach our minds, comfort the brokenhearted and the humble, Lord. And we ask that you would challenge and convict the proud. God, may you be glorified. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we have been uh, walking through, when I preach, walking through the book of Hebrews, and uh, we come to the heart of this section about Christ's priesthood. Christ, why is Christ better than the priests of the old covenant, the priests of the old temple? And he's, he goes into some detail about what they were doing. And I think it's important for us to understand what exactly the old covenant, the sacrificial system in the temple was meant to accomplish, especially in relation to their conscience. Because what we're actually going to end up seeing is that the first thing that God wants to do with our conscience is actually make it honest. That in the old covenant, he wanted them to be honest, to not be deluded by their sin. Because he does want to dwell with his people, but not in a way that masks sin or downplays it. Not in a way that we have to then delude ourselves into thinking we can come to God because our sin isn't that big a deal. No, that's not what the pure conscience is going to be for Christ. We first need to realize what the old covenant was up to because that will teach us something about our sin. And so in verse 1, our passage reads, even in the first covenant, the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. Then he gives a lot of Details about the, the tabernacle. He's focused more on the tabernacle uh, as opposed to the temple, but the temple in many ways was the sort of permanent uh, tabernacle. The tabernacle was what they would have used wandering through the wilderness. The temple then being built by Solomon in a, uh, with an actual structure that didn't move. But the same purpose being accomplished. Later on, he says, these preparations thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second, only the high priest goes. So what exactly was accomplished in the Old Covenant? He's not saying that it was all a waste of time. And he's definitely not saying, and sometimes we think this, he's definitely not saying that it was man-made, meaning they came up with it on their own. No, God directed them. God directed them to build the tabernacle, directed them to build the temple, directed the priests with long and detailed descriptions of how they were to worship. Why? So that they could come near to God. There was fellowship with God. So the positive thing that was actually being accomplished was there was regular worship. There was Forgiveness of past sins. These rituals did matter. In verse 13 in our passage, he says, the sprinkling of, with the ashes of a heifer, the blood of goats and bulls, it did sanctify for the purification of the flesh. But it was outward. So it was a cleansing, but a cleansing that was meant to form this sort of outward community this outward uh, people of God that could show to the world 
the pure and holy and perfect God. But there was a negative that was always implied. If the positive was, this is who your God is, this is what it means to be holy and pure and clean and set apart. The part of our passage where the negative is always there when they are communing is that they couldn't go to that second place. The most holy place. The holy of holies, if you will, in another translation. He could never, the priest could never go there, and certainly not anyone else. So in the time of worship, and in the time when the priest would go into that first space, representing the people to God, that was real worship, and yet he was always reminded, and the people of Israel were always reminded of the barrier. And so even the Day of Atonement, which was that one day of year where the high priest could actually go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, as one commentator put it, said, the greatest festival of the Jewish year, paradoxically, shows most clearly the limitations of the old dispensation and its high priesthood. The time when the priest could go near, pass through that veil, was also a great reminder to Israel that you have this outward cleansing, but it is meant to be a sign, an indicator that you need something much more deep. You need a cleansing that goes deeper, it goes inward. And so the whole old covenant sacrificial system the parts that, if you've ever tried to read through the Bible, maybe you start glazing over because there's so much detail and there's so much blood and gore, that part was just supposed to be a sign. Meaning, all of the depths and the details does not point to something less, it points to something greater. It is meant to awaken our conscience. Awaken it to show us as, as if we are being held up to a pure mirror to show us what our sin really is in contrast to a holy God. And so in the New Testament, outside of Hebrews, we hear similar uh, points being made. Romans 3, Paul puts it this way, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. So over and over, the temple is meant to show us that. It was sin in Romans 7, Paul goes on. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, meaning the law, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Galatians 3 says that Scripture imprisoned everything under sin for a, about 1,500 years. That means it's a really big, important sign. Now, you don't, if you see a sign, you don't get caught up in the sign, but you want to understand what it points to. And it points, in this case, to something better because God wants 
to dwell with his people. He wants to dwell with you. But he cannot dwell in sin. He cannot draw near to an impure, unholy people. And so over and over throughout the Old Old Testament and throughout our lives, we see how God is trying to use good things and bad things to show us our sin. In Amos 4, listen to how God speaks to his people. Amos 4, this is a, a, a minor prophet in the Old Testament. I withheld the rain from you when there went yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. God is grieving for them that they don't get the sign. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go up into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Is this, is what, is this what God is saying to you? I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus I will do to you, O Israel, because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. This is the assumption, I would say, of the entire Bible. The whole offer of salvation that we have in Christ makes no sense without this assumption. And that, I think, is why Christianity is so bloody. Have you ever heard that critique that can't we just talk less about the blood? Isn't that just an ancient, you know, that's what the old religions did, but we are modern. We are sophisticated. We don't have to sing songs like nothing but the blood of Jesus. That is just ugly and weird. But wouldn't it be true that if God wasn't willing to get bloody for us, then he wouldn't have real power and compassion? Isn't it true that it's our problem, that our culture has become so sanitized and we try to keep death away? The one thing we know everyone will face, we try to act as if it doesn't exist, and so we ship all the cemeteries out to way far so we don't have to look at them, and we try to fight the one thing that is true of us? Violence is out there. Blood and death. I think that is the critique of a sanitized culture. No, Christianity is bloody because it's real. It's not naive. It's not superficial. God's grace, as I just heard in a song, God's grace runs as deep as his scars. That is good news. It is real and dirty because sin is real and dirty. But what does this have to do with our conscience? Well, the first thing that God wants to do with our conscience is actually to make us honest. Is actually to make us, give us the freedom even to face sin. 
to see that when it comes to access to God, there is a deadly, treacherous river that you cannot cross in order to get there. And if you don't see that, you are going to run headlong into it. If you don't realize that there actually is a bridge that you can't just run into the river, you will drown. He wants to expose it so that when it is exposed, it can be washed. So with that background, if you will, the, the, the assumption of the text, then I think we can read verse 11 with much more power. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the great, greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all. Praise God into the holy places. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Hallelujah. He has purified our conscience. What does that mean? He wants to make our conscience honest, but then he actually purifies it. Well, in great contrast to the old covenant, the argument we have here is, as Hebrews does often, how much greater? And remember, there he's writing, we think, to a congregation that was largely of a Jewish background and that was tempted to fall back into the Jewish religion so that they would it would be more comfortable, it would be more respected, it seemed to be older and more ancient and more wise, and it would uh, prevent them from falling into persecution. They weren't going to have to do these things like, fate, like claim that Jesus alone is Lord. And so when he says, don't fall back into that, he says, how foolish it would be to fall back into something that is not even close to as good as Jesus, how much greater is his work than what you would fall back into? And so sin and, and denying Christ looks more and more foolish here. He wants us to see just how good the grace in Christ is. So we have this inward cleansing. We have even in verse 9, did you notice this contrast? According to this arrangement, meaning the Old Covenant, gifts and sacrifices offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Did, we, did you even think that was a possibility? The, the contrast is what we have in Christ can perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Perfect it. That's a word that is used very importantly throughout Hebrews. The tent is described here in, as a more perfect tent where Jesus went. We can enter the most holy place. That should seem insane. If you, under, if you had lived in the world of the Old Testament temple, that is crazy. But, of course, at Jesus' death, Matthew tells us the veil was torn. We can enter the Holy of Holies. 
Or the Holy of Holies, God's holy presence, goes out by the Spirit through the globe in Christ. And so to act like we don't have a pure conscience to then access God, to actually come to him, to act like we don't have a pure conscience is to do what presumably the priest did after Jesus' death, which is to stitch the veil back up. Stitch it back up. I don't want to go. I can't come. It's too good. Why is this so hard to believe for us, do you think? I don't think it's because we take sin too seriously. I think probably because we're just stuck on ourselves that we don't feel pure. We don't feel like we've been cleansed or washed. And so surely this pure conscience is something for the elite Christians, the super saints, whoever they are. Of course we don't feel pure. That's the whole point. And so if we think, there are two ways that we can be offensive to God in this way. If we think we can come to God, enter even the Holy of Holies, because we're pretty decent people, that, of course, is offensive, not having any sense of who God is. But if we think we can't come to God because we've had a bad week, that, too, is offensive to God. That, too, denies what Christ has done. We are focused. Of course, we are still impure, but we come to God in Christ. We can come humbly confident. I was reminded, if, if you've watched shows like The West Wing, you know, shows about the president where everyone, everyone addresses the president as Mr. President. Yes, Mr. President, Mr. President, do this. But then when the kids come, when the kids, like in the West Wing, they're in college and they come home and visit the president, they don't say, Mr. President. What do they say? They say, Father, Dad. They don't have to go through these secretaries to get an appointment. And so in Romans 8, we are told we can call out to God, Abba, Father. We have a pure conscience. One of, the, um, one of the questions in the shorter catechism that I love to go to, and it just helps, helps me personally, and also helps just a lot of conversations and counseling, is question 36 where it asks, what are the benefits in this life that accompany or flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? Meaning, what are, what are the things that we can be sure of? What are we sort of guaranteed in Christ? Not things that we pray for and hope could happen, like we pray that uh, we would be healed of a sickness or we pray that something goes well. We're not sure of those things. What are the things we can be sure of in this life? And the Shorter Catechism gives us five things. Joy in the Holy Ghost, assurance of God's love, increase in grace, perseverance to the end, God will hold you. And what is the fifth one? Peace of conscience. Peace of conscience is the birthright of every Christian. Peace of conscience. Our confession of faith describes it as the liberty which Christ has purchased for believers under the gospel, and it consists in their freedom from the guilt of sin. Is that your experience? That sort of freedom, that sort of 
purity? There's a great implication that our tradition, I think, does a good job of, of, of sort of prizing, is that peace of conscience also implies that God alone is Lord of your conscience, and so that you do not have to feel bound, or your conscience doesn't have to feel stricken by anything else that God has not put on you. And how many times have I talked with people who are weary and burdened, and they're so focused and concerned about things that God actually hasn't placed on them? It's a gray issue. Should we do this or that? Should I choose this major or that, this class or that? Should I call? Should I text? Don't. There is so much freedom that God wants to offer to us. The Old Testament warns against, um, some of the prophets warn against declaring peace when there is no peace. And that's because they were treating the temple superstitiously and uh, but it's a danger, too, to declare that there is war when there is no war. When, the, when your conscience has been purified, has been cleansed, and you act as if it hasn't. I fear that a lot of us in this church, our achiever types, suffer from less spiritual freedom because we are burdened by this lack of achievement. We are burdened by what we think should give us access to God. We are burdened by that, not realizing that our access is in Christ. Our conscience is free from those burdens. An implication in the church, and when we think about engaging any sort of cultural issues, is we don't want to put something in your way that is not Jesus Christ. Paul can say, I've become all things to all people because he simply wants to proclaim Christ alone. And so an implication of this is sort of the opposite of cultural imperialism, meaning if a 17th or 18th, 19th century missionary going to Africa, you know, the stereotype is if you want to be a Christian, you also have to dress like me, learn English or learn Dutch or whatever. No, they're putting all of these barriers in front of Christ. That's why you won't, you won't see an American flag in this church. Why would we put that as a barrier between you and Christ? There is one mediator, one go-between. Do not feel burdened by anything else. Christ wants us to enjoy peace of conscience. So he has purified our conscience, so he wants our conscience to be honest wants our conscience to be pure, and then finally he wants our conscience to be secure. Which again gets at an amazing part of this passage at the end of verse 12. By means of his own blood, what has Christ done once for all? Once for all, what has God done? Thus securing an eternal redemption. It's secure. It's a foundation. It's not built with duct tape. It's built with concrete. The once for all is a great feature of the book of Hebrews. What would it mean? What would it look like for us to actually stand on that sort of foundation that is built on the once for all work of Christ? That he has entered 
the Holy of Holies, and he has bought us with a price. He has secured an eternal redemption. Redemption is similar to ransom. It has to do with buying something. So he has paid a price that no one can afford. He has gone to a place that no one else can go so that access can be offered to everyone. Do you see why the exclusivity of Christ secures the redemption and actually offers access to everyone, regardless of background, education, what you've done this week? In thinking of where, where Jesus has gone, a lot of people point, thinking about, like, where does God dwell? How could he dwell in a place made with hands? Well, the Bible never acts like God could dwell in a place made with hands. Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. There is no other barrier between you and the holy God except for sin. And the sin that has once for all been dealt with in Christ, that sin is washed away. It is cleansed. So if you try to come to God and that you don't think that is true, that's offensive to Christ. If you th- try to come to God and act as if you can climb that ladder that Jesus came down on, that's offensive to Christ. But how free and glorious and joyful is this meant to make us if we can imagine a conscience that is pure in order to worship the living God. That's how it ends with that purpose clause, in order to worship the living God. The worship is, uh, a, it's not just a general worship term, it's a, it's a term for the priests serving in the temple. They serve in a certain way in worship. We are then made, all of us, into priests to worship the living God in order to represent God to the world. Romans 12 says something similar. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And so I think part of our fight is preaching against, speaking against, even inside our own heart, against those things that say, no, you can't come, you're not good enough, you haven't done enough yet. Just like that, the song, Christ Alone, right? It proclaims, here in Christ I stand. No guilt in life or fear in death. Here in Christ I stand. And there's, there's another hymn. I, I don't know the, the title. I think it's uh, She Must and Shall Go Free. And it talks about Jesus' blood speaks loud and sweet. Here all deity can meet. And without a jarring voice, welcome Zion to rejoice. All her debts were cast on me. She must and shall go free. Do you realize that's what Jesus is saying to your sin and suffering and the circumstances that you think are going to keep you from God? That he's, he's 
declaring to anything that we think is going to block our access to God. He's saying, no, you, beloved, you must and shall go free. Jesus' blood speaks with power. Do not settle. Do not settle in the Christian life feeling like, yeah, my conscience is all right. I'm doing okay. I've been, he's, he's helping me through a few sins. He has purified you. You no longer have to live under the condemning guilt and shame that often our world wants to put on us. You can be honest because you know that that is not going to prevent you from coming to God. I hope that this can sink down deep into our souls, that we would know that the cleansing is not just outward, not just the way we look or feel. It is when we look and feel terrible, then Jesus' blood speaks with power that we must and shall go free, that your conscience is cleansed to his praise and glory. Amen.